0: The distant canyons and crags of Yellowstone melted into a flat, scrubby landscape on the left of the highway to Grand Teton. The car passed the Grand Teton mountain range, pasted flat against the sky on the right, like a two-dimensional collage of magazine scraps, close enough to touch. My French-speaking father interrupted his droning of verb tenses and burst out, Gros ventre. He pointed to the name of an intersection. Do you know what that means? The words limped across my tongue. Grovantra? It means flat stomach, my father exclaimed, as if it were obvious. When we pulled to a stop at the Grand Teton National Park Visitor Center in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a park ranger with a jolly laugh relayed the story of the strange street name to us. It was a misunderstanding, he explained. The French-Canadian fur trappers, who arrived in the region in the 1800s, mistook the Native American sign for waterfall to mean fat stomach. The ranger made a flowing gesture with his hands over his belly. Though bizarre, this incident is far from isolated. Scraps of miscommunication between the Native Americans and fur trappers are as common as golden-mantled ground squirrels around here. One hundred million years ago, tectonic plates rammed against each other in an erratic geologic bullfight beneath the Earth. Ten million years ago, violent earthquakes ripped away the old scabs of sedimentary rock that had flared up in the wake of the tectonic clashes, and one panel of Earth's crust swept over another. The block of rock that came out on top formed mountains, while the displaced crust was thrust beneath to form the Teton Valley. Two million years ago, glacial goliaths eroded the rock and chiseled the mountain and water formations that we see today. The rocks in the heart of the Grand Tetons are a mere 2.7 billion years old, a geological youngster compared to the other rocks around the world. Unfortunately, the park faces an early demise due to climate change as modern glaciers recede. I interviewed a park ranger about the impacts of climate change on Grand Teton National Park. My
1: name is Christy Hafner, and I'm a seasonal ranger at Grand Teton National Park in the Interpretation Division.
0: Nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you. So,
0: first, I'm just wondering how climate change is impacting Grand Teton?
1: Well, there's a lot of things that are happening. Obviously, um, you're here at a period of time when it's really warm outside, and um, that's unusual for this time of year. Ordinarily in June, we don't get these high temperatures like we're experiencing. But of course, that's not climate, that's just weather. So when we look at the long term, we see um, up in the upper elevations of the mountains. The most noticeable thing to me is that the glaciers are receding, and they have been receding, Um, and uh, some of the glaciers are receding at rates that mean in the next 15 to 20, 30 years, they're going to be completely gone. So those glaciers have been around for tens of thousands of years, and now they're disappearing at a really rapid rate. It's impacting things like some of the animals that we have, the pica that live up high in the mountains. They, they don't do well in warmer temperatures at all, which is one of the reasons why they live in such high elevations. So as the climate warms, the pikas migrate further and further up the mountains But eventually, they're going to get to where it's just rock and no plant material, and that's what they depend on for their survival. So they won't be able to live at the very peak of the mountains. Even if the temperature was okay for them to survive, there's no plant material up there that's going to allow them to survive.
0: I noticed that the ranger was hesitant to speak about climate change, and she conceded that some people don't believe in it. This is another instance of misunderstanding. Climate change is a topic backed up by mountains of rock-solid science, yet it's fraught with controversy due to the amplification of misinformation.
1: The main thing that we're trying to do is trying to educate people, um, because, as you're probably aware, This topic has been controversial for a long time, um, and a lot of people think that it's it's either because it's occurring naturally or even if it's not occurring naturally, there's not a lot we can do about it. Um, But we're trying to educate people and let them know this is what's happening. These are the impacts. We have the data to support the information that we're giving people, Um, and hopefully that will make enough people decide that Changes need to be made
0: on a global level. 10,000 years prior to the arrival of white settlers, the Shoshone indigenous people flourished in the Teton mountain range. The Shoshone dubbed the formidable peaks Tiwano, or many pinnacles. The French-Canadian trappers who barreled into the native homeland in the 1800s are responsible for the mountain's raunchy name, the Trois Teton, or the Three Breasts. The Shoshone people, whose tribal name translates to sheep eaters, utilized 125 unique plant species found in the mountain range and were spiritually and culturally linked to the peaks. By 1872, all indigenous inhabitants were forcefully relocated out of the mountain range to make way for dude ranches, farms, and settlements. Today, many of the park's lakes and landmarks carry the namesakes of the white trappers and settlers rather than their indigenous birth names. As I drifted down the Snake River in a raft with the Tetons peering down at me, Our guide pointed out yet another egregious naming error, and I was riding its current. In the 1800s, the Shoshone people ribboned their fingers in a weaving motion to show the French that they were weavers. However, the trappers interpreted this signal to represent that of a snake and coined the river after the slippery reptile. Maybe the names aren't completely contradictory, though. Indeed, the river winds with a deceptively strong undertow, weaving fallen trees and branches beneath its slippery surface. Almost 500 animal species and 1,000 plant species live in Grand Teton National Park. As I slogged through the record heat up to Death Canyon, teens clad in bathing suits made their way to the jumping rock at Phelps Lake, but my family followed the cascading river up to the 7,200-foot-high patrol cabin. A pair of yellow-bellied marmots greeted us, venturing too close to our feet as we peered in the windows of the cabin. Why are they getting so close? People probably feed them, I said, disappointed that the wildlife wasn't so wild anymore. Marmots need deep snow to insulate their winter burrows, but decreased snow cover will make this difficult. Less rain and warmer temperatures means the plants they feed on will be scarce. As I zigzagged back down the mountain switchbacks, the views of wildflowers, soggy marshes, and the peacock blue Phelps Lake fanned out before me. I munched on an apple and peanut butter. But all I could think of as the sweat thundered down my forehead and peanut butter smeared my hands were the marmots at the top of the mountain. They were enduring the heat in thick parkas and soon they wouldn't even be able to snack like me because climate change will drive away the plants they rely on for food. They have no idea what's to come, I muttered as my air-conditioned, gas-guzzling rental car zipped out of the parking lot. What can visitors do to help the park?
1: We have an expression here in the park service that we say that people are loving the parks to death, and I'm not sure if that really makes sense to you, but what we mean when we say that is that we're really glad that people are coming and we're really happy that people Want to experience the national parks, and um, we feel like that the more people that come here, the more likely people are to want to support and protect these places. But those people are also doing things that are hard on the resource and having a lot of impact on the resources. So, um, you know. One of the things, that we have a lot of rules and regulations about where people can hike and where they can camp and where they can drive their cars and take their dogs or pets and those sorts of things. And it's really, um, the number one thing is that all of those rules are designed to help lessen human impact on the park. The rules are not there to limit your fun. The rules are there to balance this need that we feel and there's our mission statement on the wall behind us, this balancing act that we have to do between preserving the resources for us but also providing for future generations and at the same time providing for enjoyment of this place. So it's kind of a tricky little balancing act that we have to figure out, you know, and the visitors can help out a lot because there's 3 million of you coming, so, um, you know, all, following the guidelines and the rules and making sure that flowers don't get picked and people don't just wander off the trail to someplace else because they'd like to go there and, um, you know, not ta- taking their dogs on the trails. All of those things are designed to help protect the
0: Jenny Lake, named for the native wife of a French-Canadian fur trapper, is one of the park's most popular destinations. Part of the trail is paved to accommodate differently abled people and create a multi-use path. This also makes for sizzling concrete and dense crowds. Though a ranger had warned us not to carry food or toss apple cores into the forest for fear of attracting creatures, the unusual lack of animals made sense to me today. The paths were packed. In the vast, chillier areas of Yellowstone, we'd been caught in bear jams at every other intersection, tiptoed past herds of lazily grazing buffalo, and ogled at Clark's Nutcrackers in the trees. Here, however, the heat and crowds kept creatures slinking into the shadows. To quote the ranger I interviewed, Sometimes we love our parks to death. Like the ancient flashing of the tectonic plates, the colliding rhetoric of the French and native people obscured the Shoshone truth under layers of rocky misinterpretations. These false narratives, like disturbed plates of sediment, buried native people's history under the stony weight of misunderstanding. And in these collisions of information, falsehoods formed mountains, and a way of life was lost. The native people had carved a history that today, thanks to the historians of the NPS and the self-empowered assertive voices of the Shoshone people, seems as obvious, natural, and undisputable as the mountains themselves. However, only a seismic shift in the way we recount history can resettle the history of the settlers and completely exhume the native legacy. Fortunately, the telltale rumbling of an earthquake is echoing through the Teton Valley. Ancient stories that have never seen daylight, stories that were buried beneath the layers of sediment and settlement, are shifting into sight. With slow but steady glacial force, the Shoshone Truth is chiseling new paths into the Tiwano mountain range. The native ancestors are sharing their stories today, and the park, which is built on Shoshone homeland, is beginning to stitch the indigenous history into their educational resources. Excavating stories and telling them from the tops of the highest hilltops has the power to move mountains. Thanks for listening to Park Wake Up Call.